Once upon a time, evangelicals in the Church of England liked liturgy. More than liked, in fact, they loved liturgy. They used it with gusto. They wrote books explaining it. They preached sermons commending it. Charles Simeon could verge on the rhapsodic in claiming that the finest sight short of heaven would be a whole congregation using the prayers of the liturgy in the true spirit of them. Liturgy, he continued, marks a golden mean equally removed from the coldness of a formalist, the self-importance of a systematic dogmatist, and the unhallowed fervour of a wild enthusiast. Our liturgy's qualities are a tender seriousness, a meek devotion, and a humble joy. And Simeon in the 18th century was no outlier, no eccentric exception, but entirely in step with the spirit of the English reformers 200 years before him. To borrow a phrase from another venerable churchman, it was the glad commitment to the prayer book, as well as to the articles, that had always constituted evangelical Anglicanism's melodic line. After all, Cranmer, like Luther and Bullinger and Bucer and Calvin, had come not to bury liturgy, but to reform it under the authority of the word of God. Their response to the grave errors of medieval worship was not to be anti-liturgical, but properly liturgical. The problem was erroneous liturgy, not liturgy itself. As Luther himself puts it, it is not and never has been our intention to abolish utterly the whole formal worship of God, but to cleanse that which is in use, which has been vitiated by the most wicked additions, and to show its pious use. Cranmer's great achievement was to give to the English people a liturgy, liturgy saturated by biblical truth, focused on the gospel of Christ, in words that they could understand and remember and take to heart. What Gregory Dix later intended as the snide dismissal of the prayer book was for evangelicals its chief glory. It was, in his words, the only effective attempt ever made to give liturgical expression to the doctrine of justification by faith. Here then was the Church of England's liturgy, doctrinally sound, poetically rich, the joy and crown of all reformed Anglicans. All this, though, was once upon a time, a time almost now vanished, gone as utterly as ghosts at cockcrow. For many evangelicals in the Church of England, and I'm sure the fine upstanding members of the Junior Anglican Evangelical Conference are the honourable exception, liturgy now, any formal liturgy, let alone the prayer book, is often at best tolerated, for those rare occasions when the bishop visits, or for those services where we want to lure elderly persons whose conversion we doubt with the bait of some cultural religion, or at worst, simply derided and discarded. Now, I in no way want to minimize the genuine concerns we may have about formal liturgy in general, or the prayer book in particular, nor do I seek to advocate a kind of prayer book fundamentalism that stubbornly refuses to change a jot or tittle of its contents. 
even Simeon, extolling the excellence of the liturgy, recognized it as human and thus as an imperfect work, and pointed in fact to three infelicitous turns of phrase over which he personally hesitated, namely the use of regenerate to refer to the child in the baptism service, the sure and certain hope of resurrection life applied to the deceased in the funeral service, and the damnatory clauses of the Athanasian Creed. And Puritans, of course, would have traditionally added other concerns to the list, such as the sign of the cross in baptism or kneeling to receive communion. In our Q&A time, in a few minutes, I'd love you to lob in your own prayer book problems for us to discuss. My guess is that today, ultimately, our evangelical hesitations over the use of traditional liturgy in our services ultimately boil down to one or several of the following. Liturgy is old-fashioned and irrelevant, we might say. It is unwelcoming and off-putting to the visitor, a stumbling block to the unbeliever, an impediment to mission. Or, liturgy is dry formalism, vain repetition, pharisaical posturing, works righteousness, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, outward conformity over inward heart change, a kind of national trust religion that reduces worship to an aesthetic cultural experience, and snobbily fetishizes an archaic style of English. Or, liturgy is Roman ritualism, Anglo-Catholic cant, tainted by superstitious practices, unscriptural accretions, chthonic mumblings that occlude the pure word of God, and now rendered even more intolerable by the liberal limpness of common worship's endlessly pallid pages. Or, liturgy is a denial of the spirit's freedom, a return to the Egyptian captivity of forms and structures, fleeing to an idolatrous security in set prayers and rhythms to keep God's subversive power at bay, stifling the opportunity for extempore praise because pre-composed prayers are decomposed prayers. John Milton famously referred to the servile yoke of liturgy, exercising an ecclesial tyranny as great as the king's political tyranny, which imprisoned, he said, and confined by force those two most unimprisonable things, our prayers and that divine spirit of utterance that moves them. Moreover, on top of all of this, we may simply have a low opinion of liturgy due to our personal experience. If we've been spiritually formed primarily in extra-ecclesial contexts like youth festivals or summer camps, if we've only seen liturgy done badly, perhaps some distant memory of dreary school assemblies or chapel services, or because we've just never had the history and theology of the prayer book services winsomely taught to us at our church or our theological college. Well, in the short time I've got today, I'd like to propose that as junior Anglican evangelicals, we can both have our cake and eat it. Like Cramer and the reformers, we can rightly acknowledge the dangers of bad liturgy whilst merrily recovering our forebears' enthusiasm for good liturgy, the rich liturgy that our church has been using for the past 500 years. We don't need to be, in other words, merely half-hearted Anglicans who cheer on the articles but mumble over the prayer book. We can rather rejoice in the glorious reformed tastiness of both elements of our formularies. So how can I commend the church's liturgy to you? The first thing, I think, is to think, what is our church's liturgy for? What it is and what it's for. All services are liturgical. Every service you have ever been to has been liturgical. It will have had a shape, 
and a structure comprised of several parts. There will have been explicit or implicit expectations regarding what the congregation should say, when it should stand, how it should sing, what the minister should wear. The question then simply becomes, what kind of liturgy shall I embrace and to what purpose should it be put? And here's where I think we can make a major misstep. You see, as good evangelical types, we know what worship is not. We know it is not pagan. We do not come before a distant and demanding and unknown God to make our offerings in the unsure and uncertain hope that they will be efficacious and earn this God's favour. We do not depend on a priestly mediator to make sacrifice for us or to manipulate the deity with magical words whispered under the breath and far away. But I wonder whether we can repudiate one error only to slip into another. We shun paganism, but end up embracing Pelagianism. We do this when we take as our starting point the conviction that corporate worship is fundamentally expressive in nature and intention. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. This is bottom-up worship, worship as a manifestation of human striving and human effort, where we are the primary actors and we gather to demonstrate our praise and devotion, a crowded stage for a divine audience of one. In rejecting pagan works righteousness that seeks to manipulate the divine will, we re-import Pelagian self-assertion that seeks to valorize the human will. I found the work of the American theologian James K.A. Smith very helpful on this point. The excellently named Smith argues that we are surrounded every day by loaded secular liturgies, sets of values and practices promising a vision of the good life and designed to shape my loves and my longings so that I come to desire the fulfillment that they claim to offer and I begin to orientate my life to those ends. And Smith writes that our hearts are like existential compasses, embodied homing beacons, so that our loves are pulled magnetically towards some north to which our hearts have been calibrated. Secular liturgies miscalibrate our hearts. They draw us off course towards pseudo-norths. So in our worship as Christians, we don't just want a lightly Jesusified version of a secular liturgy, but a robust gospel counter-liturgy to anchor us and to prevent us being conformed to the ever-changing spirit of the age. Christian worship, then, is primarily there to recalibrate our hearts, to reorder our loves and to retrain our desires towards God and his gospel, to enculturate us as citizens of heaven rather than of the world. Smith's point then is that corporate worship is not primarily to be expressive, it is to be formative. Our Sunday meetings are not the means of our justification, but they are the arena of our sanctification. It's precisely this conviction that we find running through the prayer book. Here is worship intended to form us. Worship that isn't bottom up, but top down. Worship that isn't about something we do, but about something God does to us. The intention of Cranmer's liturgy is that week by week, we are met and remade by the living God. We are educated in God's truth, schooled in God's praise, trained to love what he loves now on earth, as it will one day be in heaven. The prayer book is good liturgy then, rich liturgy, 
because it offers us a complete spiritual gymnasium, the ecclesiastical equivalent of a Joe Wicks workout. Now, just as the aficionados of Mr. Wicks will know the virtue of repetition, of fixed, regular rhythms of activity, of the need for the correct sequence of warm-up, workout, and cool-down, the complementary benefits of the burpee when allied to the lunge, so too we can begin to see how the prayer book's repeated words and practices, the deliberate flow of its services, the memorability of its language, are not impediments to worship, but aids to worship. Of course, we know this could only be true at any point of any act of worship if it were governed by the authority of the word of God. And the prayer book, as Peter Adam has succinctly put it, above all else, is a model of biblical liturgy. When we worship according to the prayer book, Cramer ensured it would be the worship of God that shaped us, not the voice of man. Now that means most obviously the prayer book contained lots of scripture. It was Cramer's evangelical conviction about the reading and preaching of the Bible that meant the prayer book's liturgy took people through the whole of scripture on a regular basis and through the entire Psalter in a month in a way that went beyond the expectations of Rome, but also of Wittenberg and Geneva. Cramer's liturgy is there first and foremost that we might know the Bible better and hear God addressing us as his word is heard. The prayer book is also a model of biblical liturgy, though, because it shapes us in a biblical perspective. It lodges biblical truths in our minds. It fortifies them in our memories so that we'll be all the more prepared to face what the baptism service refers to as the vain pomp and glory of the world and all its covetous desires. We'll be all the more equipped to meet unexpected trials and temptations and adversities, knowing our hearts are securely fixed where true joys are to be found. Just think about the beginning of evening prayer, for instance, which you can join us for later on the Jake Facebook page. It begins tellingly with words of scripture, doesn't it? Words of scripture that tell of God's gracious character. For example, from Daniel 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses. Though we have rebelled against him, neither have we walked, the, obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us. So the start of the service, God calls us to himself and you, and in inviting us into his perfect holy presence, reveals us, to us our sin and our need for forgiveness. See how far this is from a kind of Schleiermachian prioritization of our felt needs. Rather, we discover who we are and in what place we stand, not through our own unaided and unclouded powers of perception, but through the revelation of God, which confronts us in our error and turns us to his truth. So having heard God's call and our need for his gracious pardon, we're invited to draw near to the throne of the heavenly grace and confess our sins. Note the rubrics bid us to do so kneeling that we might conscript our whole selves, our bodies, as well as our hearts and our minds in this petition for mercy. And then we get this, this prayer of searing self-examination. Almighty, most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep, and so on. That's a familiar prayer to us. We see here poetic rhythms, rhetorical skills, sonorous power, which help to embed this prayer in our hearts. Notice the subtle alliteration, device and desires, the doubling, erred and strayed. Look at how the heart of the prayer, our need for mercy, have mercy upon us, those in need of mercy, those offenders. 
how that's met at the beginning and at the end by God's mercy, surrounded by God's most merciful character. Look at the solemn tolling of the death knell, which sounds through the first half's we. We have erred. We have followed too much. We have offended. We have left undone. Look at how it pivots around the but of the divine forgiveness. And then we get a series of descriptions of the divine character in the second half, the vows and the thys, as we look to God's gracious act in Christ. Now, the point of the poetry, of course, is not to fixate on itself, but to point beyond itself, because here we see that from the outset of this service, our identity is being re-narrated by God's word. Every single service of the prayer book, in fact, tells us that we must know ourselves first and foremost as sinners in need of forgiveness. In his biography of the Book of Common Prayer, Alan Jacobs puts it like this. Again and again, we are reminded that there is but one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. None other matters, so none other is called upon. The one relevant fact is his verdict upon us, and it is by faith in him alone that we gain mercy at the time of judgment. And so our deepest need is met by the transformative God, good news of God's forgiveness in Christ. Almighty God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. That prayer declaring God's forgiveness. How often in our services do we deprive our congregation of the delight of hearing the pronouncement of the absolution of their sins? Perhaps because we think it a bit Catholic. For William Perkins, certainly no Roman sympathizer, this was one of the great tasks, the distinctive joys of the ministry of the gospel, to announce God's forgiveness of sins and the sweet assurance of God's reconciling love. Throughout the last century of liturgical revision, it was popular to criticise the prayer book's penitential rigour, as if its refusal to move beyond this awareness of our sinfulness reflected a kind of unhealthy spiritual masochism. It's for this reason, perhaps, that common worship omits the necessity of confession in daily prayer altogether. But it's surely one of the chief excellencies of our liturgy that it recognises that in one sense we never move on from being forgiven sinners. We never move on in this life from that infection in our nature that remains, as Article 9 soberly reminds us, even in them that are regenerated. And so we never move on from the cross of Jesus Christ that the prayer book constantly holds out as our redemption and our hope. In the prayer book liturgy, then, we are being formed by gospel emphases of sin and forgiveness in a way that radically counters the liturgies of the world. In fact, it exposes the cruelty of secular liturgies that want to affirm us in our sin or claim we're strong and complete in ourselves without need of God. It's a tonic to the poisonous liturgies of the world where judgment is rife, but where true forgiveness and lasting peace are nowhere to be found. Moreover, I wonder whether the prayer book's liturgy protects us from our own temptation to water down the Christian message in order to make it more palatable to the world. It helps us to hold our nerve in the face of the world's scorn. It suggests to us, perhaps, that an invitation to confession is precisely what the outsider most needs to hear. It's precisely this, rather than, than the lure of some Starbucks-quality coffee at the end of the service or the attraction of worship songs that perfectly mimic last decade's top tunes, that is, in fact, the most seeker-sensitive thing we can offer. 
Note too that evening prayer continues as it continues. We're not only hearing the Bible read, we're also making our response to God's word in the words of the Bible through psalms and canticles. The liturgy is shaping us, disciplining us, discipling us at every point of God's word, at every point by God's word, so that our affections are being tuned by godly patterns of prayer and praise. I love the way that in evening prayer we do this by retracing the whole sweep of redemptive history. We hear the promises of God in the Old Testament reading. We then respond with the culmination of those promises in the Magnificat, in the Song of Mary. We then hear the good news of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And then we join with Simeon in the Nunc Dimittis in professing that having seen and met and known this Jesus Christ, our salvation and our light, we can now depart, even die in peace. Well, I've barely scratched the surface of the liturgy here. And in the Q&A, we might like to talk more about the distinctive virtues of some of the other services of our liturgy. We might want to think about the baptism service where we're charged to confess the faith of Christ Christ crucified and courageously to fight under his banner or the funeral service where we're reminded that Christ alone is the resurrection and the life or the churching service, which I can attest from personal experience is a wonderful way to recognize and to name the perils and fears of childbirth and direct our thanksgiving to God or the ordination services, which lay down the centrality of the Bible for ministers, or the communion service, which is especially dear to my heart, and which, like an expert jeweller, beautifully presents to us the dazzling facets of all the benefits of Christ's passion. But let me just conclude for a moment, though, with some questions for discussions we go into our breakout groups. Um, Two or three things to think through for ourselves. First question, why not just start by sharing some of your own experiences of formal or traditional liturgy? Times when it's been terrific, times when it's been done really well, perhaps also times when it's been absolutely terrible. What's made the difference? Is it the skill and preparation of the service leader? Is it the the match or the mismatch of a particular church context? Is it a question of the liturgy's familiarity or its obscurity? Have your own feelings about liturgy changed over time? So experiences in liturgy, first thing. Um, Second question, we think about our own church contexts. What obstacles are there to benefiting from this rich liturgy in our churches today? And are they worth overcoming? Where do our hesitations lie? Can we teach our congregations about liturgy? Are our congregations being formed in ways, for example, that give them regular prayers they can memorize? Do our services have a logic and a flow or are they just a warm up for the sermon? Should we be modernizing the prayer book's style, perhaps some of its language? Or is there something helpful about its distinctive register? And third question, if you, if you get through all of that, which will be very impressive, um, let's have some liturgical controversy. So um, the Puritans didn't like kneeling for communion. This was historically one of the problems they had with the prayer book. Um, should we kneel for communion? There we go. Oh, light of love.